significant song of social protest you can dance to. Welcome back to the Philip Kiddick Book Club. And today it will be Energy Beans. Okay, the story is The Infinite. Uh, it was first published in, what was it, May of 1953 in Planet Stories. So it's, uh, it's another pulp uh, magazine of science fiction literature um, on pretty much all of Dick's stories were written and those kinds of things. He got a nice spread. I, he sent a lot out. I know, and I, there's this anecdote about him getting like 12 or 20 rejection letters in one day. And that just shows you how many stories he had written and were sending out to different magazines. So they all kind of started coming out in 1953, and, and there's a couple dozen that come out in that year. Um, you can currently find it in the first volume of the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick, which is now published under the title Paycheck and Other Classic Stories by Philip K. Dick. But it's... Um, the first volume you can probably find it in other places too um, so energy beans let's see what he does with them um, a, a survey team uh, on board the cruiser the cruiser's x43y it arrives on an asteroid and the commanders are pretty worried what he's worried about what the the, the, the crew members are were especially major the major Crispin Elder, and there's Harrison Blank, his, Black, his second, Blake, Harrison Blake, his second. They're worried that there's no life on the asteroid, but there's the ideal conditions for life. So there's a theory in this, in this universe that because there's kind of space bacteria drifting consistently throughout the universe, that any place where there should be life, there will be life. So it's, it's kind of a, an, a theorist thesis that there'll be a lot of life in the universe just because wherever it could arise it would it, it should but this asteroid has the conditions but no life um, there's also a, like a survey competition going on between earth and the the settlers on Jupiter um, and they're competing to see who can map the most asteroids and planets and so the ship that comes back to earth with the most mapped asteroids the best you know survey of life outside of Earth, you know, kind of gets the best prize or whatever. Blake wants to complete the mission, and Eller, Crispin Elder the Major, is concerned about safety, and he'd like to ignore it. Um, so they, they just don't trust, he doesn't trust the asteroid. So they send out the hamsters. So Silva Simmons, an, a scientist, prepares the hamsters, and Blake lectures the captain, most of the Major, um, claiming that he has more experience in space than his superior. Silva announces that the hamsters had died. Um, there was a blast of light that rendered the crew unconscious, and the hamsters died in that blast of light. After two days, the crew wakes up and includes that there was some sort of radiation burst from the asteroid. B Blake agrees that landing on the asteroid was a bad idea, and the crew makes plans to return home in hopes that treatment for whatever happened to them is possible. They basically think they got blasted with some radioactive stuff and that they could probably die if they don't get some treatment so they all decide to go back and then they also say that this is why the 
asteroid, although being in that zone for life to be possible didn't have life, is because any bacteria that tries to start life there would be hit by these radioactive blasts. In any case, the crew is eager to return home, and this possible illness coming their way is what convinces them to do that. The crew begins to experience psychological consequences of the blast. They start to lose fingernails and hair. They become smaller. Their facial features begin to atrophy. And we get some really nice descriptions here of the, you know, the seeming decay of these people. It seems like they have radiation sickness, right? You have every symptom there, radiation sickness, the lost hair, the lost body parts. Their brains seem intact, though, but the crew worries that they won't be able to return to Terra as anything but monsters, mutant monsters. So is this our first Philip K. Dick mutants? Maybe they are. Although these aren't really mutants in the way they'll be explored in later stories, but um, they have this concern that they're going to be monsters. The changes could continue, and Blake is the first to notice that some of the changes actually are improvements. They see that they're, they're, they notice that their brain has enlarged. They, they begin to think that maybe the radiation is not killing them, but accelerating their evolution. Now, how can this be? How can something external accelerate evolution? As we know, evolution is a product of our conditions, right? If there's conditions on Earth change, our, you know, our future our, our descendants from the future will look different than if there's a different event. If we have a nuclear war, our, our descendants will look one way. If there's no nuclear war, but maybe global warming, our descendants will look a different way, right? Because evolution is not teleological. But the only way that you could almost trigger evolution through some kind of radiation blast or something as if our future selves are written into our into our core right into our dna that that evolution is as i said teleological that it follows a certain path and maybe it can go this way or that way but essentially there's a destiny for our species so silver and elder and the other people that crew begin to come to terms with their changes, but realize a problem. If they return to Terra, millions of years more evolved than the others, they'll be tempted to dominate the planet and guide human development. Uh, and they'll say they'll just be unstoppable. They'll become like the alien in the day the Earth stood still or whatever, or the aliens in Childhood's End by uh, Arthur C. Clarke. The, the idea that their goal of, of kind of advanced life is to uplift, to raise the status of the people the, the people who are still behind in the evolutionary train. Troubling as well is that Blake was struck earlier by the radiation, meaning he's himself more advanced than the crewmates. When you're talking about millions of years in a few days, the person who got that blast first is actually, you know, in himself millions of years more evolved. Blake will then have the power to dominate the ship, dominate the crew, and, you know, he's, he's, he's superior to the people who were hit by the radiation but blast later. Blake himself expresses this desire to return to Terra, and he wants to lead the Earthlings to galactic domination. A struggle um, breaks out among the crew, and it's aborted by the arrival of five energy beings. They disintegrate Blake. Uh, now, who are these five radiation beings? Well, you guessed it. They are the hamsters from the lab. They were struck even earlier by the radiation wave, and they themselves are even millions of years more advanced than the already advanced crew members. The entities reverse the evolution in the crew, allowing them to return back to Earth. So that's the story. Well, probably not as much to deal with in this story as some of the others. This will probably be a shorter episode than the last last one, and it'll be shorter than some of the ones coming up. Um, 
the idea of teleological evolution is interesting as a science fiction device, as a literary device. It's a shout out to the anti-Darwinian theories of evolution. And I'm not sure how far Dick was from those. Um, I know that after The Origin of Species was published, you had a period where Darwinism was not widely accepted. You had other explanations for diversity of species and change over time, right? You had uh, Lamarckism, for instance. Um, and some of these involve the idea of teleological evolution, that somehow in our core, in our, in our being, is our future development. In the same way, there were some people, I think this is Lamarck, who thought that the embryos, the fetuses, went through earlier stages of evolution. So for a time, the fetus is like a, a fish, and then it becomes a monkey, and finally it becomes a human. So the development of the, of the child and the mother is the development through previous states of, of evolution. So um, there's that. Obviously, it doesn't make it doesn't really f fly in our now our current understanding of of evolution and why there's a diversity of species and how species uh, change over time. There's also here a foreshadowing of perhaps intelligent design arguments, right? I mean, that's the only way it works, I guess. If if evolution is teleological, okay, but that only works if there's some kind of intelligent design, right? Some massive intelligence that knows what our future conditions will be and what is what will best serve them. Now, of course, there's no reason to believe that post-humans will be more advanced or more intelligent than humans, right? Again, if, if evolution is based on our conditions, it might be that our ancestors, or our, sorry, I keep saying that, ancestors, it might be that our descendants are stronger, have better eyesight, but they may not be necessarily more intelligent, right? Uh, they may not evolve into energy beings. Maybe they will evolve into, you know, predators or something. I mean, there, there could be any variety of futures based on the conditions we come at, right? It's only, we can only believe that post-humans will be more advanced or intelligent than current humans if there is some kind of plan involved, right? Dick is quite reckless with the science and technology in this story, applying just ideas that are most useful to him. It's not the first or the last time he does this. He's, he's not really a hard science fiction writer, obviously. He doesn't really care about the science or how technology works in the end. He cares about the philosophy. So is there philosophical value to this story? Um, I think there's a little bit. Um, this unfortunate blight should not distract us from what does have value, especially the danger of interstellar or interterrestrial, extraterrestrial exploration, the dangers of alien encounters, and then most importantly, an argument about hierarchy and control and power. Early in the story, Blake scolds his superior for impertinence. Quote, listen, Eller, I'm 10 years older than you. I was serving when you were just a kid. You're still a pasty-faced squirt as far as I'm concerned. This is the attitude that Blake takes at the climax of the story as well, that he is advanced compared to others, right? Now, for a moment, he's the perfect model of the supervillain, is he not? He's the one who thinks because he's better, he's got, he's got a, a certain vision or he sees something that other people can't see. Therefore, he has a right to rule and command the destiny of others. Quote, we can do a lot for them, meaning the earthlings. Their science will change in our hands. They will change, altered by us. We'll remake Terra, make her strong. The triumvirate, which are the people of Jupiter, will be helpless before the new Terra. The Terra that we will build. The three of us will transform the race, make it rise, burst across, across the entire galaxy. So he's got pretty bold ambitions. In turn, Blake's pretensions are cut short by an even superior elder, the lab hamsters, who have evolved to even a more advanced species. 
Perhaps this is an interesting reflection on the biblical sentiment that the first shall be last, but in fact, they internalize the same values. They're older, so they're, they're more advanced. The older, the more advanced are the natural dictators, right? So the hamsters do to Blake what Blake said he wanted to do to the Terras. It's the same pattern of domination. It's the parent imposing its will on the children, children having to accept the will of the parents because the parents or the elders are more powerful, stronger, more resources, whatever. Of course, if the sentiment is universal, it makes interplanetary exploration dangerous for two reasons. One is the assumption that aliens will be more advanced and should be followed, right? So if we assume that the most advanced aliens should rule and have wisdom or perspectives uh, that will improve us, then either we're going to meet aliens that are more advanced and therefore we should be their slaves, or we're going to meet aliens that are primitive and therefore are subject to our uplift. We got the colonial mentality one way or another. Either, you know, it's kind of a, a dotish fascination with the other or more dangerously, perhaps we'll just go to space as colonialists. Perhaps it is these so-called more evolved beings that are the impertinent and pretentious ones. Now, children often are very creative. So I, I actually reject the idea and I think Dick rejects the idea that just because someone is younger or not in a position of power that they they don't have the ability to be creative. Now, again, we, we see Dick trying to map out a, a, a geopolitical situation. He plays with this a lot of early stories. He, he likes to set his stories in situations of interstellar conflict. He doesn't really care about the war or its outcome. Um, for him, the Cold War is just the, the, the world he lives in. It's just a throwaway. It's the context for other arguments. And so sometimes he just recreates the Cold War in another setting. Here we have it between Jupiter and Earth. Sometimes it's Proxima Centauri. Sometimes it's the moon, like in Time Out of Joint. Sometimes it's other planets. It doesn't really matter. It's just this. It's, the, it's all the Cold War in one way or another. Dick seems to believe that frontier humans settling the moon and outer planets will develop a distinct culture. Right. And so here we have the Jupiterians, the triumvirate. There were humans at one point and they developed their own culture. Right. So certainly the frontier is creative. It's potentially creative for humans who move there. But that same cultural gap is going to lead to conflicts with Earth. So the colony coming back to overpower Earth is a common motif. Um, and this is good. This is a, a piece in the puzzle of Dick's views about the frontier. Um, so. That's that. Uh, teleological evolution, energy beings. Um, is life possible on asteroids? We got supervillains. There's a, there's a few things to do with this story, actually. Coming back on it, maybe I was too hard on it at the beginning. Uh, it's actually a fairly interesting story in my review, uh, thinking back on it. Okay, well, thanks for listening. If you have comments about this story or any other big stories, please uh, leave them. You can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, or just keep listening. I'll, I'll keep coming out with episodes uh, until I get through Philip Dick's stories. And pretty soon, or relatively soon, maybe we can start with a solar lottery and start getting into Dick's novels. All right, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. She's my radiation baby. She's my teenage fallout queen. Here comes the dramatic part now. I remember it well, my darling, the night we had our fight. You threw my class ring into the grass as we sat in the park that night.
we were 